Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Nico Franks. We're coming to you from the United States, where in New York this week, the likes of NBC Universal, Fox Entertainment, Disney and Warner Media are presenting their upcoming fall schedules and more to advertisers and the media. Stacey Lynn Shulman, Chief Marketing Officer at media sales outfit Cats Media Group, is there this week and spoke to me on the phone earlier about some of the main takeaways from the event so far, following NBC Universal and Fox Entertainment's presentations. Broadcasters in particular are able to do it all. You know, they can be digital and streaming and on demand, just like the competitive set. Um, but what they have that's unique um, is this live simultaneous um, viewing experience or media experience. Um, that is, I think, the power of what they do. That's when you talk about reach. It's not just reach, you know, in aggregate. It, you know, huge impact all at once. So that's the message that maybe not said in that way, but I think the message of what Linda Yaccarino was trying to get across at her uh, upfront presentation. And she talked about the advertisers and, you know, their ability to, you know, connect with audiences and all that. But really, when you get down to it, that's what it's about. Fox, on the other hand, you know, had to come back and talk about who they were or who they are in the wake of all their changes. And, you know, that's a different conversation um, altogether because they, they're sort of left to explain what their brand is about um, now that, you know, so many of their assets have kind of poured it over to a competitor. And I think they did a fairly good job of turning a potential negative into a positive, talking about it being a blank slate and building the network. If you were going to hit the reset button, start over, um, how would you build it? Which is sort of a a romantic way of saying we have to start over. (laughs) But, you know, I thought they did a very good job, given, you know, what they had to play with, you know, and and they still are edgy, and we know who that brand is. So, you know, that was a clear message. But I think overall what we're starting to see, and, you know, ABC is up today, CBS tomorrow, CW, all of these networks are multi-platform. They're not emphasizing their digital streaming components. They're really emphasizing the power of their storytelling, and the power of their ability to, to bring viewers together in, in a simultaneous experience. And I think that's what's going to resonate. That might not be the case this time next year, though, when many of the media giants will have joined CBS in launching their own eagerly anticipated direct-to-consumer subscription streaming services. I asked Stacy what impact those new initiatives are likely to have. You know, I would expect that once the networks are really kind of in the business of this streaming thing, and CBS arguably has really been doing it for a while, once they are really um, working with this, I think you will see some creativity about how networks test shows. I think they'll incubate shows within their streaming environments. I think they will expand their audience delivery um, with their digital delivery and add all those impressions together and, and have a really good sense of, you know, what kinds of audiences want to view live versus um, on demand. There will always be content that has to be live um, and wants to be live and maybe more than we even think. But you have to have both now. That's the world that we're in. 
So, you know, I think that we'll find that they will continue to be creative, that they that they know, that, that they can dabble in the content that is maybe a little more racy and um, needs to have more creative license in order to keep the best showrunners working with their networks and not losing them to these streaming-only um, distribution platforms. I think that that will be a way for them to to keep and attract talent. Yeah, I think we will see a much more holistic presentation of how content moves fluidly between and among their platforms, digital and analog, when we get to the next year's upfront. This year, it's a little, it's kind of on the back burner. And don't forget, there's a lot of sensitivity about um, streaming content when you have a an affiliate model where broadcast stations across the country are, you know, contractually um, engaged with networks to run that programming and they have the right of first refusal. So it uh, could be a sticky issue um, as we get it, the network get more into streaming their content. I also got Robert Russo, president of RNR Media Consulting, down the line to chat about how the major consolidation in the U.S. media industry is impacting the kind of television that's getting made. You know, it, it kind of reminds me of uh, like Renaissance Florence. You have this this group of people who have a lot of money, um, princes and, and kings and queens and dukes who are now out there spending money and on people who are creating all these wonderful programs, wonderful documentaries, wonderful entertainment shows. Um, and, we, you know, with, with every Sistine Chapel, you're getting a, a whole bunch of uh, paint thrown on the wall. But I think it's, I think it's wonderful. I mean, there's never been more, more entertainment and more information that we could find and we could use, um, not only in the United States, but in the entire world. And I, I think it's, it's awesome, awesome. If you take a look at what somebody like Netflix or Amazon or the cable companies, USA, TNT, where they traditionally didn't have these 22 or 24 arc episodes for, for their shows, um, you're starting to see that more and more with the broadcast networks. So, you know, NBC with their hit show, um, Blacklist, they're, they're running 10 episodes and then it's going on hiatus for a couple months and then it's coming back again. So I think they're starting to adapt and I think they're starting to realize that um, less is more. Um, again, it kind of almost, almost reminds me of the 70s and, uh, and I don't know how many people around remember this, but when they used to do a lot of miniseries, whether it was Rich Man, Poor Man or uh, Roots, where you had like these great, really well-written, well-produced, well-acted-out miniseries that were, you know, only ten episodes or twelve episodes. So I think that that's how the, that's how the television folks are adapting, which is which is more more quality and less quantity. Yeah, I, I well, I think it's smart. I mean, who who has the time to sit down and watch twenty-two episodes of anything? You know, if you're streaming it. Or if you're watching it on Hulu, or you've, you've, you've uh, recorded it on your DVR, I don't think people have the time anymore. I think people, because there's so much quality out there, I think you really have to produce quality. Otherwise, you're going to get left behind. I also asked Robert for his take on how Netflix continues to evolve and respond to factors such as Disney removing its content from the platform ahead of the launch of its own subscription streaming service. You know, it, um, they, I think their response is just turning up more and more product, and I don't know whether or not the product is as good as it used to be. Um, 
I remember when Netflix first started doing their own originally programming, the programming was really, really good. And you'd wait like, you know, once a month or maybe once every two or three weeks and it'd, it'd pop up in your little screen saying, hey, this is a new show that's available. Now it's almost every day, it's daily that you see something from Netflix. And again, the quality isn't as good. So I think they're, push, they're, they're bringing pressure on a quantity basis because they are the market leader. Everyone is chasing after them. Um, and then you have somebody like, you know, like Disney, who holds all the rights to the Marvel movies and all the rights to the Star Wars movies. So they're already starting a, uh, a service that has a quality-based programming. So I think it'll, it's going to be interesting. I also, and again, I don't understand, um, I don't understand um, how Netflix can continue to operate the way it's operating. It's, it just seems their programming, uh, their programming uh, business side is just so heavy. They're spending so much money on so many programs. They're cutting deals with people for, you know, tens of millions of dollars like the Obamas. And uh, I just don't know how they can sustain their model without changing one way, shape, or another, other than, of course, raising their prices. And if they continue to raise their prices with all these other opportunities out there who are coming in at lower prices, you know, that just doesn't economically make sense to me. Stacey also had some thoughts on the continued Hollywood hype surrounding Netflix and whether or not U.S. broadcast groups deserve more credit for supplying some of its most popular shows. Here's what I will say, because, you know, we're very quick to criticize them for, you know, they didn't have a big, you know, huge hit. Um, But there is, you know, a plethora of theories and, and content that's been developed in the streaming world that never sees the light of day, that people don't even know exist, um, that aren't sampled. Um, and I think what you see is that as much as they're attractive to um, talent because of the, um, the creative license that they get, um, there is the other side of the coin, which is, well, I can be as creative as I, I want, but if no one sees it, um, is it a worthwhile endeavor? So, you know, there are some things that do get some play and do get some visibility within um, some of these streaming platforms, but nothing like what broadcast is still able to do. And even when we've done our, our own studies on Emmy nominees, and, you know, if you look at last year's Emmy nominees, um, a large majority of them came from Netflix and Hulu and Amazon and um a few, you know, in the cable world, but there were only two shows, um, one drama and one comedy that were nominated um, from the broadcast realm. But those two shows, when we tested with the viewers, were three and four times as well-known as the other shows and had been sampled a lot more than the other shows that were nominated. Some of the shows that were nominated had, you know, Maybe 10% of the people we talked to had even heard of them or had seen them. So lots of great creativity that's going on, but um, not, uh, not a very powerful platform for getting their own content noticed. Now, they don't take advertising. Some of them do. Who does? But, you know, if, if they're having that sort of a trouble getting their content, their primary content noticed, then for the ones that are ad supported in some way, shape, or form, what does that say about it as an advertising forum? I think there were a few stories recently that said that the top show on Netflix is now The Office. Um, and in fact, you know, I, 
armchair research, I, I see my own children, you know, watching old series, you know, from broadcast that um, they're not watching the new stuff. Um, they're watching the old stuff. Um, the old stuff is, you know, well-crafted, um, is not going to be offensive to, you know, a portion of the population because broadcasters are licensed. So they have to be very careful about the content that they create and so that it is as appealing to as wide an audience as possible. So there are a lot of things that are inherent and built into the broadcast model um, that are great for creators, but really great um, for advertisers as well. Meanwhile, as one of the most advanced streaming markets in the world, with US households continuing to cut the cord and take out subscriptions to SVODs, I asked Robert how he thinks consumers will react to the influx of new services over the next year. I think there'll be some fatigue, but I, you know, my business does a lot of stuff um, on how people can get entertainment and how they view it, um, how they consume it, and, and what the actual audience measurements look like. So if, if you decided today that you did no longer wanted um, your cable company or your satellite company or something along those lines, which essentially is just basically providing you with 500 channels of which you only watch 15 of them, um, you could cut that cord and for a fraction of the price, probably half of the price, you could get Hulu and Netflix and Amazon Prime and HBO Go um, and have all that entertainment at half the price or maybe a third of the price. So I think that, you know, I think that more folks will continue to cut the cord. Um, you know, in cutting the cord, I'm also still able to get my broadcast stations and all the entertainment and all the sports and all the local news that they give me. Um, and if I just want to spend 11 bucks a month, I can get Netflix, which is going to give me tons and tons of stuff, right? And if I decide I want to be, you know, I want to watch um, the, the prequel to Game of Thrones that HBO is doing next year, um, for another $14, I can do that. And for 35 bucks. I'm going to have more entertainment than any cable company can provide to me. And I think, you know, right now people are still holding on to that because the cable companies provide the Internet service. But as more and more, you know, uh, Internet services are popping up and G5 on your phone and all that kind of stuff, you're not even going to need the Internet company, the cable company for the Internet. So I think it's going to be interesting. I think the consumer will have more choices at lower prices, which is what capitalism is all about, I guess. That's all we have time for in today's podcast. But I'll be back next week as international buyers from networks around the world touch down in LA to screen the latest US shows. But just as has been the case at the upfronts this week, expect much of the talk to be about the wider structural changes going on at some of the US's biggest media companies rather than the programming. Goodbye.